You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition. Now, Federal has come out with a new turkey load called the Heavyweight TSS or the Heavyweight Tungsten Super Shot. Now, this is a tungsten alloy material and it's 18 grams per cubic centimeter density now what this means is it is it's 22 percent higher than standard tungsten and 56 percent higher than lead so it is a a very dense material and it has the ability to travel at high velocities and continue that velocity at longer distances it has deadly patterning and it also has something called flight control flex and that is when that rear braking wad performs flawlessly through ported and standard turkey chokes so if you want to find out more information about the heavyweight tungsten super shot visit federalpremium.com and while you're there don't forget to check out their podcast and their blogs tons of great content Welcome to the Missouri Woods and Water Podcast, your source for all things outdoors in the great state of Missouri. This is episode two, part two of our elk series in Missouri. I'm joined today by my co-host Micah Winstead, and our guest today is Aaron Hildreth with Missouri Department of Conservation. So we're excited to have this episode, right, man? Dude, it was really good. It got a lot of good information, you know, found out some stuff that I had no idea. And I mean, I, I thought it went great. Yeah, Aaron. Aaron is super, super knowledgeable. He uh, he taught us some stuff that I didn't even know about elk in our state, and it's a it's a fun episode. So yeah, it gets you it gets you even more excited for this coming elk season and the seasons to come. You know, because there, there's a lot more coming down the pipe. So. Yeah, some of the stuff he talks about um, gets you excited that you know our our herd in this state is is pretty darn healthy and and is gonna get even better as time goes on. So. Um, welcome to the show. This is the Missouri Woods and Water Podcast. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. Got my brother-in-law, Micah, with me. How we doing? And on the phone with us today is Aaron Hildreth with the Missouri Department of Conservation. Aaron, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Good. Um, before we get too uh, far into it, why don't you just tell us uh, you know, who you are, uh, what you do for a living with uh, the Missouri Department of Conservation, and uh, something we like to ask our guests, what is your favorite thing about the outdoors? <laughs> a loaded question. <laughs> I know um, it is. So my name is Aaron Hildreth. I'm a deer and elk biologist with the Missouri Department of Conservation. I've been with MDC since about the middle of 2016. Um, I guess a cool background for me um, that relates to elk here in Missouri. In you know during the reintroductions in 2012 and 2013, I was actually doing my master's work in Kentucky, 
on the very elk that are now here in Missouri. Oh, so that's awesome. Kind of a background story there. Um, hmm. Yeah, probably my favorite. You know, the best thing about being outside really is just getting to connect with nature and forget all the, you know, the uh, the hustle and bustle that is most of daily life and just get to relax. Yeah, I bet these last uh, eight weeks or so have been kind of weird for for a guy like you. I'm guessing you've been kind of grounded a little bit with COVID and all that, and uh, probably been doing a lot of office work yes it's been a little different well we'd love to claim that all biologists we are just we just get to spend the entire time outside in the woods that that would be a lie <laughs> uh we we do have quite a bit of of office work but it uh, uh i'm a, a huge introvert and so i i've it is i found uh that i really do have that kind of cap where no I, I really do need some human interaction so <laughs> It's been kind of a reverse. Yeah, I think everybody during the it's it's the fact that they're forcing us to, or you know they're trying to make us stay at home. That's probably the most inconvenient. Like, wait a minute, maybe I do need to go out and talk to somebody. That that'll make me feel a little better. I think. <laughs> yeah, we we don't like being told what to do. It's probably good that we listen in many cases, but we yeah you know, we we were told to do something. It's just our natural tendency to try to rebel, even even yeah. when sometimes it's for our own. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Well, we're uh, we're super excited to have you on. Um, we've already done part one, sort of 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 the Missouri elk. Um, it was just kind of us us three uh, co-hosts talking about what what's going to happen with elk season. Some of the basic stuff we kind of read through the Department of Conservation's um, release um, when they uh, released the the drawing. But what I'm almost more excited to hear about is is our herd of elk in this state and some of the details that we really don't know that we're excited to ask a guy like you that has probably most of the answers I'm guessing. So, um, can you give us kind of a background, a general background about elk in our state and, you know, what happened when they became extinct, um, and kind of the efforts that have been leading up to this point? Yeah. So, you know, the, the history of elk, in Missouri really is a, a fairly lengthy one. Um, and it, you know, the story probably begins, you know, when we look at just elk in North America in general, and if we focus even more specifically on just the United States, elk historically range pretty much throughout all of the United States, the exception being the extreme Northeastern part of the country. And then most of the, basically the entire state of Florida. Otherwise elk were found again, pretty well throughout all of the United States. But when, uh, we, you know, when settlers started moving west, um, elk were a, uh, a good food source, to say the least. And so, you know, unregulated hunting, and in particular, probably even more so unregulated market hunting, where you know, people were shooting elk, they were doing the same thing with bison and, and a lot of other natural resources that were found in the areas as people you know, moved out west. They would take those parts and pieces of the animals, ship them back out east to where the, the major population centers were, the, where the markets were. Um, and that unregulated harvest did a, did a number on a lot of wildlife resources that we had here in the country at the time. We fast forward to, you know, Civil War time, so mid-1800s. Our, you know, elk population was probably pretty darn low, um, 
and then you know to our knowledge the last recorded elk was shot and i believe it was texas county in give or take 1886 1888 somewhere in there so that's the last recorded note of free-ranging elk in the state was late 1800s so before we reintroduced them they've been gone for over 100 and what is that 1886 to 2000 what we re you guys reintroduced to them back in 2011 correct that is correct so yeah it was you know so give or take ish 125 years. year absence wow it's a long time so yeah and and you know there are there are a variety of you know we have the species is the over is the, the bigger you know critter but then you have subspecies within that and you know historically here in missouri we would have had what was known as the eastern elk subspecies and that subspecies is in fact extinct um what we have you know throughout you know the country now with the exception of ex on the extreme west coast um are the rocky mountain subspecies so so what is yeah, we, what is the main difference between yeah, what we what missouri used to have the eastern elk subspecies um compared to what we've reintroduced which is the rocky mountain uh subspecies what it is there any main differences? I know like Rosie's out West, um, you know, are a little bit different than Rocky Mountain uh, subspecies, but what was the Eastern elk like? Um, it was, you know, and when you think about, you know, so the Eastern subspecies probably would have been, I'll basically think about a line from the Dakotas, you know, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas, going eastward. That would have been, the rough range of the eastern subspecies so it was most of the united states um a lot of that landscape is more hilly than mountainous or it's just flat out plains and yeah so that subspecies was adapted to the quote-unquote wide open spaces um given you know, some of our record history forum is a, is a little bit vague given there wasn't quite as much interest in documenting everything um, you know, there may have been some slight deviations in the, the color of their coat or pelage, you know, either lighter or darker, depending on the time of the year to help them, whether and depends on which school of thought you fall into on whether they would have been lighter or darker to either be seen better or to actually blend in more to avoid predation. You know, there's, there's different schools of thought on that, but ultimately there really isn't a ton of difference. Uh, between Rocky Mountain and what we think the eastern subspecies would have been like. They're pretty darn similar in body size, in antler appearance, antler size. There's not a whole lot of differences. There's more differences between, say, Rocky Mountain and Roosevelt or Thule. So. Okay, cool. You know, that, but then, I, that I did not know. I mean, I, I assumed that, you know, they were either Rocky Mountains or, or maybe even Rosies or something like that that were here before. So that's that's new to me. That's that's pretty cool to know. Yeah, I wasn't sure how many different subspecies of the elk there was. So, and there another another extinct species, um, actually more associated with Canada. I believe it's you know Manitob Manitobensis. I think it was the Manitoba subspecies. Hmm. Yeah. So it, that's, that's too that bad. Of the five that were in North America. That's too bad. That's hard. I mean, and wh what are some things that maybe, you know, led to the the extinction in Missouri? I, obviously, you know, the Civil War and overhunting, but for instance, the white-tailed deer, uh, 
survived that, I guess you would say. Is that is that because, you know, is an elk just not as adapt to survival? Maybe because, you know, when they're when it's mating season, they're very vocal, so they're easier to find. Um, what are some reasons, you know, that they they uh became, you know, the the unlucky one compared to something like a white tail or or other things like that? Yeah, so there, there's probably a few things that play into that. One, um, I mean, in yeah, they are more vocal during the breeding season, elk are, but, you know, they are more of a, a herd-type animal as opposed to a whitetail, which by and large is, you know, is either solitary or small social groups. Um, it's also a larger animal, so more bang for the buck. And even in the, the heyday, there would just be physically fewer of them you know, they, they take up more space than a whitetail would need. So you know, they're just different biological traits. Even with that said, I mean, if you look back to our the first deer hunting season in Missouri, I believe, was in 1944. And it was limited to a very, very small number of counties. It was antler deer only. It was like a two-day season. Um, there was a point in time here in Missouri where even whitetails, we – you literally had a matter of a few hundred left in the state. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the places I go up north, uh, one of the old timers that's, I mean, I, he's gone and passed now, but he used to tell stories about how when he was younger, they just never would even see deer. And you go up there now, and I mean, it's hard to drive down the road and not hit one um, every night. So, I mean, it, it's crazy to think that it's changed so much. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we estimate we have 1.2 to 1.4 million deer in the state right now. So it's a it, it's another example of a conservation success story. And then, yeah, you know, when you look back, even even as recently as the, the 1950s and 60s, you know, seeing a deer in some communities was, was literally the front page of the, the paper the next day. Right. I can remember my father-in-law, who's in his 60s, telling me when he was a kid and he would go hunting, he would be happy if he saw a deer in the season. Just one deer. Not not even getting one, just seeing one would be a success for them. And, you know, you got guys like us that are spoiled now. And if, <laughs> it's like if we don't see a minimum of one deer every time we hunt, we get angry or something like that. So it's crazy how just in, you know, what'd you say the first year was 1944 or something like that when we could, when we could hunt a deer, the difference in, in that 70 or so years uh, can make. Absolutely. I've got, I have one of the first, the original deer hunting permits from 1944 in my office. So oh, cool. Very neat. So, okay. So we, we, we reintroduced these guys in 2011. Um, you know, how has it, how has it gone? I mean, what, what has it been like since from 11 to 20 to kind of get the herd, you know, how many did we introduce back in 11 um, how has it gone as far as, you know, them, I guess you'd say sticking here. <laughs> um, and then, you know, what got us to this point now where we're, we're going to open a season at least for a, a few of people, uh, in 2020. Yeah. So, you know, the, the reintroduction process, you know, most people think of it as the started in 2011 to 2013. And that's correct. That, that is when we reintro- started reintroducing elk, the, the conversations for this and a lot of the legwork really date back to, you know, 2000 when we did initial study to figure out if it was feasible to bring them here. It was then tabled 
for about a decade and then renewed interest in 2010 led to the commission approving that reintroduction starting in 2011. And so between 2011 and 2013, 108 elk were you know, reintroduced from Kentucky. And so Kentucky was, was kind of chosen as the, the source herd. You know, a lot of people think that it really is as simple as you just go grab the elk and, and you move them. And it, I, I wish it was that simple. It is not. Um, it, it is a, it is a, a very big, long ordeal. And so um, we have to make sure that you know, we have industries here in the state, you know, cattle being one of them. We also have the, the whitetail deer herd that's here in the state. You know, we, we can't jeopardize those resources just by bringing an animal. So the, the elk in Kentucky had to undergo a, about a six month long disease testing period. So a, a very lengthy quarantine to make sure that they're safe to move. But you know, all told, again, 108 were reintroduced in that three-year time span. And as I kind of like to, to tell people, even though we reintroduced 108, I also mentioned that there was about a six-month process each of those years. That reintroduction process is really stressful on animals. You know, you're, you're taking a wild animal that's never, that doesn't know what a fence is and holding it in quarantine to test it and then moving it. And you know, many folks will recall the drought of 2012 um that was really really hard across the entire state and it was also hard on the elk since we also think about the biology of elk or calving elk start calving you know sometime between the middle of may and early june is when things really start to kick off and that's right around the time that they were being moved and so that was a really stressful time for them you tack on that drought and it, it was really hard. We fast forward to June 1st of 2014, figure that of the 108 that we reintroduced, about, well, not about, 81 were still alive. So our founding population size really was 81 individuals. Okay. Yeah. But, and, and you kind of, I'm not saying expect, might not be the right word, but you probably expect some of that, um, just because of, you know, the stress of the move, the stress of the six months, um, you know, the disease testing, you, you probably do expect some, some, some death, loss. some loss when you first, you know, reintroduce them. Or was that kind of a shock to you all when you went from 108 to kind of 81, you know, in June of uh, the summer of 14? Yeah, so, I mean, unfortunately, yeah, because of the stress involved, you know, you you do expect some loss and you know, we do everything we can to minimize or mitigate that. You know, we, we have to, we have to respect that resource and we don't want to, we want to minimize hurting it as much as possible. Um, but you do expect some, you know, I, I, the, the drought of 2012 was just really, really unfortunate in its timing. And it was, it was really hard on the elk that were reintroduced in that year. Those that had already been here from 2011, they actually fared the drought pretty well. Um, but those that were reintroduced in 2012, they, they were hit a lot harder than those that were already here. Yeah. The, uh, the terrain that they, they came from in Kentucky. Um, I've seen mm-hmm. the hurt, I've seen the hurt in Kentucky too on, on a vacation before, but I kind of, kind of forget where we were. Is it a similar as far as elevation for them? General terrain. I know Peck Ranch is, is much different than, where we are in the west central part of the state so was it was it similar as far as 
the the area they got reintroduced or was that even something they had to kind of get used to as well all things considered they were with again within reason pretty similar you know they were in the you know in kentucky they're in the 16 southeasternmost counties of the state um the 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 reason they were reintroduced there uh, was obviously because of the coal industry that was there at the time and all of the, you know, they would do mountaintop removal coal mining. So basically push off the vegetation, mine the coal seams, put the, put the overburden back on and then, um, you know, reseed it. And that environment with a bunch of early successional plants was elk heaven. And so they, they did really well there. We have here, obviously, uh, not a. We don't have, to my knowledge, at least, a very active coal industry here in in Missouri. Um, so it is a little bit different. The here is probably a little bit more forested, but you know, both places have some topographical relief. Both places are hot and humid and muggy and buggy in the summer, and you know, decently cool and fairly humid in the winters so yeah all things considered pretty similar right okay what's what's the lifespan of a elk here in missouri do we and do we have any from the original 81 that uh were original to it so oh yeah oh um so we we act two of our original release animals in missouri were actually two of kentucky's original release cows oh wow wow (laughs) So, um, you know, it seems like our bulls here in Missouri live to be anywhere between seven to nine years old. Uh, things seem to be a little bit harder for them than it is for the females. Um, our cows, uh, man, of that 81, we're probably still sitting in the 45 to 50 is my, you know, just kind of off the head guess of what percentage of those and of that 81 or 45 to 50 of that 81 are still alive now. Oh, yeah. Our cows seem to live, you know, easily to 10 years. And I, I have no, I'm certain that we have some cows that are creeping up on 15 years of age. Well, and I, that's gotta be a good thing because, you know, the older they can get, um, I mean, you know, obviously the more, more calves they can have and, the more they can, I guess, teach, you know, what life is to a younger elk. And I mean, that's gotta be a good thing. It's gotta be good to see that they're getting older here too, because the, the larger the numbers get, you would think that would kind of snowball on itself. Um, you know, as they die off and then the ones that came behind them and, and whatever, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing they're, they're having calves every year for the most part, just like any other, elk herd would so um yeah and then yeah our 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 cows you know we 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 love to see older cows because you're right there is some there's some knowledge there that is is good for them to pass on um yeah we've seen pretty we've had we had one really poor year in calving it was actually two years ago uh, but outside of that our our calving rates have been good and probably even on a bad year a quarter to a third of our yearlings are actually calving. Um, so when they're hitting two years old is when they're dropping their first calf. And if you look, you know, in some years, it's been probably as high as 50 or 60%. When you look to Western herds, those numbers are usually, you know, 
five to twenty percent on the higher end. Um, so they're they're getting to the weight that minimum weight they need to get to to actually have a calf at a a young age. Wow, so, that's good. I'm... Yeah, now that you know, the the biggest the biggest hindrance for elk here in the state, you know, everybody, especially when you think of out west, we always love to blame the thing with uh, sharp pointy teeth. Mm-hmm. And while yeah. we we are fairly certain that you know mountain lions have played a a role in the death of I believe seven elk here in Missouri, so it's a cool ecological interaction of the two rarest mammals in the state. The the main cause of death for elk here in the state is a parasite that looks like a human hair. It's called brainworm, and it's it's really common in white-tailed deer, and it causes them no harm, but in elk and in moose. Uh, it can cause quite a few issues, and and of the deaths that we've been able to get, you know, do any kind of a, a necropsy on, um, somewhere between a third and half of our mortalities are associated with that parasite. Do you have? I mean, is there anything you can do as far as treatment or anything? combating or that, it, or is it just unfortunately it's here and got to got to deal with it as you can? So, I mean, there there are treatments for brainworm, um, and you'll find, um, so brainworm can also impact, like, llamas and alpacas, and so, you know, we know that um, livestock producers that have those animals, they, they do treat that parasite. Um, we run a fine line where, remember, these are, these are wild, free-ranging animals, right? and there's that fine line of between our responsibility to that resource but also to let mother nature kind of do what mother nature is going to do. Um, you know, even, even though we have that parasite and it is, it is slowing the growth rate, we still have a positive growth rate. Um, you can also look at it, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, they have brainworm in Kentucky. Um, we've done work looking at the difference in genetics between the parasite there and the parasite here. And there are some significant differences and the genetic makeup of those parasites, even though they're the same species. And so the elk in Kentucky may have adapted to the strains that they have there. Well, if we, if we treat our elk here, we may hinder their adaption to that parasite. And basically we're, we're promoting the weak that whenever we would stop treating them would then potentially succumb to that parasite in larger number versus maybe letting mother nature do what she's best at and weeding out the weak and, and keeping the strong. So there's, there's different ways of looking at it. Yeah. It, um, that kind of makes me think is this, so our herd, is there ever any plans to reintroduce any more or we get what we have, what we have. And if it doesn't work out, that's it. Or what's the situation there? Are they going to try to bring any more in or what? I, I, that's not loaded at all in the middle. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't happen, right? Right. <laughs> that would I really mean, suck. I mean, I would like to think that we could keep this herd and, you know, let it grow more and more. But, I mean, you know, if we lose it for whatever reason, I'd, I'd be curious to what you thought would happen. But, I mean, I don't want to get you in any trouble. So, <laughs> if you don't want to answer, don't well, answer. <laughs> no, you're good. So, I mean, you know, while – Certainly our plan is not to lose the herd that we have here. If for some reason that were to happen, regardless of the reason why, I don't know what would be done. I, I do know that at this time, there are no plans to reintroduce anymore. You know, it, it is a, 
it is a very expensive thing to do. You know, it, it is very it's very expensive to reintroduce animals. Yeah, um, and you know the the cost for that, even though you have you know, partners like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, for example, who are phenomenal at providing financial resources to help with those efforts. The reality is, you're still spending money on something that you could have spent that money on. That's also you know, something else out there that's also deserving of that funding. Um, you know, if, if we start to see a decreasing population in our herd, we may explore additional options for things that we do. But again, at this time, there there are no plans to reintroduce anymore, and there are no plans to move existing animals in the herd to new parts of the state either. Yeah. So okay. Well, it's funny because I was just getting ready to ask a question that is kind of almost the exact opposite of what Micah just asked you. <laughs> um, and, you know, reading the uh, the release MDC had about um, the elk season, one thing I thought was interesting is kind of that, that number of 500 for a cap that you would like to see. Number uh-huh. one, you know, why 500? Is it is it because there are certain things that, you know, would uh, – would be detrimental to the the herd if they were larger. Um, you know what goes behind the thinking in 500 elk here in the state uh, that you would like to kind of yeah. see it sit at. Yeah, so it, it really is. You know, we'll we'll back up a little bit. I mentioned uh, a feasibility study that was done in 2000 to determine whether or not it was even practical to reintroduce elk here. And you know. When we think about Missouri, Missouri is a state that is 93% privately owned. Um, so it's the exact opposite of most of the West. <laughs> huh. And we know that elk, uh, if people think that deer can cause issues, especially when we think about agriculture, um, an, an elk is exponentially worse. <laughs> they have a very big belly that needs a whole lot to keep it full. Yeah. And so when we look at Missouri, you know, do we have any area in the state that is a fairly high percentage of public land? And the answer is yes, we do. Um, you know, the, the, the elk restoration zone, which made up portions uh, or makes up portions of Carter, Shannon and Reynolds counties is about 80% publicly owned. So it, it is the exact opposite of what most of Missouri looks like. And you have about 20% that's private property. Then you have about 80% that's publicly owned. Also within that, you have a fairly low human population density, mm-hmm. pretty low road density, and basically no row, row crop agriculture. You do have cow-calf production and hay pastures that exist, but there is no, you know, nobody's growing corn or soybeans where the elk are. So kind of and a so that that really, kind of a perfect storm, like you were you just kind of talking about there. It's just different than the rest of the state. Ab- absolutely. And so it really is its own unique area within the state for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so with the habitat that's there, which is, you know, predominantly, you know, Ozark, you know, forest, um, you do also have, you know, an intermixing again of those pastures, but also of open land that is a, a decent chunk of it that's held by MDC, National Park Service, um, yeah, there's a lot of open ground that we can, you know, manipulate to provide high quality browse and forage for elk with the habitat that's there within that original zone. You know, 500 is about what that habitat can sustain without 
those elk being forced to move elsewhere. So that's that really is how that 500 number came. Now, you know, we we do realize that, you know, as the population grows, even before they get to 500, you're going to have individuals that kind of test those boundaries of where you know where they currently are and they want to move out into the fringe. You know, we're going to rely on Missourians and those private landowners and other you know stakeholder groups that exist, whether it's Cattlemen's Association or Farm Bureau. We're going to look to those diverse stakeholders and go, do you like them here? Do you not like them here? You know, work with them to help manage that. You know, there's a chance that we'd be able to have a population goal of greater than 500. You know, we're, we just don't know that yet, but we want to make sure that we get public input to help guide those decisions down the road. Yeah. Well, in this last episode, we were talking about that number and, you know, we just kind of speculated on, well, you know, if they're going to be staying down south, that might be the number that is just, you know, just right in the sweet spot. Um, if if they don't want them migrating too much, and we started talking about if they were to migrate up north to where we are, you know, we're in the west central part of the state, not as much timber, a lot of ag, you know, not near as many people <laughs> as like Kansas City. And we even wondered how would they do up here, even if people are, were okay with them here. How would they do? Do you know they don't? They're not going to have these giant chunks of timber that they have down south. And you know what? What would survival look like for the herd further up north as they start potentially moving? Um, but we figure that that number of five hundred had something to do with what you just kind of told us. Uh, was you know yeah. there's there's a reason why we have that number where it is. Um, one other thing I noticed, and after this next question, we might get into the actual season here, but we've all seen posts, um, you know, over the past few years about poaching. How big of an issue has that been so far? Um, you know, obviously it's hard to catch those people, but we've, we've seen posts and we're just like, come on folks, can't you wait? (laughs) You know, that sort of deal. Has that been a problem or has it really not been as big of a deal as, as, you know, we might see just on social media and things like that. Yeah. So of, you know, of the animals that we know have been poached, let's see, we had the bull that was poached back in, you know, around Christmas time of 2015. We've had two calves, Bull, another bull, another cow, and then the most recent one was a cow during um, firearms deer season uh, this most recent year. So, you know, we only know of a handful. Um, obviously, there, there's a chance that there have been more. You know, I, I will say, you know, it, as unfortunate as those incidents are, and, you know, it, yeah, I guess it's worth pointing out that the wildlife resources that are held in every state, not just Missouri, but the resources are collectively owned by the public. MDC or whatever the state agency is, is just, we're just the ones that have been tasked with helping to manage that resource for the good of the resource and the good of the citizens of those states. Um, When people poach an animal, whether it's an elk or a deer or or whatever it is, they really and truly, it, it is no different than me walking into your garage and stealing your car 
Right. It is it is theft of a public, you know, of of property, um, and so it, it really is a, a an annoyance. I will say that it is um, very encouraging to see that what the public response is when they find out about those incidents. Um, you know, the the cash rewards that are available. I believe. Um, the most recent poaching case, I think there's a $20,000 reward out for information that leads to an arrest and conviction on that. So there's a lot of, there's, there's some significant money that's being put behind those efforts. Uh, it's also really encouraging to see the locals from those communities. They're not happy when elk get poached. They, they understand the value that those elk can have to that local community and that local economy um they don't want to see that resource wasted and so it, it's it's a way of finding a good out of that very bad but you know, thankfully the number seems to be pretty low and is having a, a pretty minimal impact on the population but you know everyone you know is important you know, if we look at we're offering five permits we've had more than five elk poached that we're aware of since the reintroduction. So those are, you can in some ways think of that every animal poached really is taking away an opportunity for a Missourian to legally pursue that animal through hunting. Son of a guns. <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that we all are just like that. We, we can't stand it. Um, one thing I like is that, you know, MDC has gotten a little more over the past, I'll, I'll say a couple of years, a little more aggressive on, you know, fines and, and the, consequences for being caught um because yeah you're right it's it's just like taking money out of my pocket it's it's no different than stealing directly from the rest of the citizens in in the state so um that's good to hear that it's not as big of a deal as maybe we think it is when we see the post on you know either facebook or instagram it looks like this huge deal just because it kind of blows up as you're probably well aware when when something like that happens (laughs) so Anyway, but yeah, I, yeah, it's again, it's there. It's very unfortunate to see them, but it, you know, again, I, I think it is a, a pretty minimal impact on the population. But again, it's it's really encouraging to see how much, you know, Missourians from across the state, and especially those those local to where the elk are, have really have embraced them and don't like it when people take that resource yeah. illegally. Well. Now onto the legal side, right? Yeah. What, yeah, what we're most, I mean, what we're really excited about is, is that, you know, we, we all talked about it this last episode. We cannot believe in our lifetimes when they first reintroduced, when you all first reintroduced these, you know, a decade ago or whatnot, it was all of ours assumption that cool, maybe our kids will, will get a chance one day. Right. And cannot believe a decade later, we're sitting here talking about the the chance to to get to potentially hunt one of these, these awesome creatures. So um, if you want, why don't you run the listener just kind of through a breakdown, a basic breakdown of, of what the season looks like, the dates that they can start uh, applying, the date that they can't stop applying, uh, applying that sort of stuff. And we can kind of go from there. Yeah. So, you know, the, the application period runs from, you know, is, is actually the entire month of May. Uh, there is a, a ten dollar application fee to put your name in the hat, and you know, there are a total of five permits this year. Four are for the general public. One of them is for a land, a qualifying landowner from within, you know, a subset of the area where we have elk, and that really is 
designed as an acknowledgement of you know we will we have to have private landowner support um, to have a successful elk reintroduction long term and so it really is you know a way of saying thank you for their their efforts and the habitat work that they've done um, when we look at you know the the application period again is the month of may for you know you're able to check and see if you're drawn starting july 1st mm -hmm. so you know go on the same way you would go check to see if you were drawn for a managed deer turkey hunt you do the exact same process um and then if you're if you're lucky enough to have been drawn there is a 50 dollars permit fee so the, the thought is we want to make sure that everyone who wants to put their name in the hat you know that it's available to them and if you're lucky enough to get drawn that the permit is very reasonably priced so this yeah. really is a way to again to give back to missourians the season itself runs there are two portions to the season and the same permit is valid for both portions we start off with an archery portion that runs the 17th to the 25th of october and then you know provided the permit isn't filled during that portion the same permit could be used during a firearms portion which is the 12th to the 20th of december the you know we've, we've tried to keep you know with despite how thick the deer and fall deer and turkey booklet is, we, we really do try to keep regulations as minimal and as easy as possible. So we've tried to mimic some things similar to deer. So um, the methods of take for both archery and the firearms portion are the same as they are for deer hunting here in the state. Um, for it to be eligible, you will, you would have to have your hunter ed certification or be born before January 1st of 1967. So the same restriction that we have related to Hunter Ed for everything else. Um, you would, you do have to be 11 or older by the first day of the hunt. So you'd have to be 11 or older by October 17th in order to apply. Mm -hmm. So putting, uh, that's, a, that's a little bit higher of an age cutoff than for deer and turkey, which is six. Um, yeah, that's the, you know, I guess we'll say the main nuts and bolts that permit would be valid for the take of any antlered animal as long as it has one antler that is you know at least six inches in length so that kind of the, the thought behind that there's no re you know this really is a, a recreational opportunity with so few permits we're, we're not worried about you know the impacts on age structure of the herd or anything like that so you know, we want to whatever animal the hunter is happy with taking as long as it's antlered we're more than happy with them taking that animal. Um, when we get further down the road, we'll look at antlerless opportunity, but while the population's still growing, we're, we're focusing on the, the antlered elk. But we really just want it to be a, an opportunity for Missourians to get out and enjoy the elk that are here in the state with the opportunity to potentially harvest one. Do you think that being, being out these elk, they've never been hunted in their lives, more than likely, besides the occasional poaching, but do you think that I wouldn't want to, I don't want to call it an easy hunt, but do you think they're, they're going to take a little more pressure than a white tail or something like that? That's been hunted its whole life. Do you think it's going to be a factor, especially like at first, right? right. Yeah. I would think like the first few days, it'd be pretty easy to get up close or, you know, whatever the case may be. Do you think that might be a situation or do you think it's just, I mean, they're, I mean, obviously they're wild, but, I mean, they they they've been around people for most of their life and haven't had any pressure towards people. 
Yes and no. So there, yeah, there are, um, yeah, the, minus the poaching. Yeah, there have these elk, unless they're a cow from Kentucky, um, they they don't have a clue what hunting is for them. And we do have, you know, we use on Peck Ranch, and it's worth noting that the refuge portion of Peck Ranch um, is closed to elk hunting. That's the only area within those within Carter, Shannon, and Reynolds counties that is not open to elk hunting. Um, you know, there are three managed deer hunts and two and four managed turkey hunts that go on on that area throughout the year so the elk are used to seeing a lot of people who are doing a lot of shooting in fairness it's not shooting the elk it's shooting other critters um so they have some experience with that but i will say the elk behave differently based on where they are so there are spots you know we've been doing research uh one of the we put collars out on the animals and we we use you know chemicals to help immobilize those animals we have to get within 50 yards in order to get those drugs into the elk well i've interacted with the same group of elk in one area on one day and they'll let me get to within that 50 yards i'll interact with that same group a couple miles away in an, an entirely different area they won't let me get within a half mile of them the next day they'll be back to where I, you know, darted the one the day before, and they'll let me get within 50 yards again. So it, they they know where they're safe, so to speak, and they know where humans tend to not be polite <laughs> huh. or where there's a difference in scenarios. So they, they really do have decent situational awareness. I have no doubt that it, it's, it's also – it's probably also worth mentioning the difference in – just biology between the two or hunting in general between the, between elk and deer. Um, I think most people would probably argue that elk hunting is far easier than whitetail deer hunting. The kicker being you have to find the elk first. There you go. Yep. <laughs> if you can, if you can see them, you can be very successful in hunting them, but you have to find them first. I think that will be the, you know, the same here um they just they react very differently than a whitetail does um while they're still they still have a great set of eyes and a great nose a phenomenal nose um it really is that if i can find you i can possibly hunt you if i can't find you i'm in trouble and yeah. with a whitetail it's just a very different story so yeah we uh, uh i don't know if i told you this when we talked last week but we all go out west every year and an archery hunt over the counter, you know, public land in, in Colorado elk. And where we're at, they're really, really pressured for the most part. And so they are, they are pretty quiet, right? You don't hear a bugle very often, um, that sort of stuff. How are, how are our elk here? I mean, are they vocal at the, at the moment, <laughs> you know, at, at, during the, those times of the year, or are they just kind of quiet in general uh, here too? they scream their heads off awesome <laughs> um yeah, so yeah. I, when when i go out west honestly i i don't i don't even bother taking calls with me i it's there's just too many other people screaming in the woods that it it's for me it's been more of a, a deterrent than a, an aid in the hunt but you know the elk here in missouri have, have they're not overly familiar with humans bugling at them um our elk here, I've heard bugles as early as, you know, 
oh, third week of September. I've heard bugles as late as the first week of December. Oh, wow. Wow. That is so different wow, so, than what, uh, <laughs> what we got going on out there, man. That's That yeah. makes all of us a little bit excited. I mean, you just said it. Finding them is what is hard. You know, out, out where we go, Absolutely. like you, there's so much public ground. There are so many places they could be. And when they're not, when they're shut, where they're shut it up, it's next to impossible to know where they're at. So you got to try to do different things to find the elk. And, um, you know, hopefully one of us gets lucky enough, but it'd be really cool to, to be able to hear one screaming and just say, okay, there they are. Now, now we got to get to them. Right. Yeah. It, it's yeah, our, our elk are really vocal. And that's, you know, when we were looking at the, the structure of when the hunt would be, you know, we, we asked Missourians, you know, a lot of questions on how this hunt would look. You know, we controlling the biology side of it's actually really easy for this. We just want to make sure that we were able to provide a hunt that Missourians wanted. And, you know, we, uh, the peak of our breeding season here is probably that first, the, the true peak is that first week of October. Um, by the end of the second week, it's starting to trail off. We still have, you know, lots of bugling, lots of critters running around, but you know, we've, done the peak of the breeding or like we know you know when people think elk hunting they think that vocal interaction through bugling and cow calling is part of the hunt it really is an important part that's why for spring turkey season you know you want to you want to hear that tom gobble yeah. <laughs> you want to you want to try to draw them in and so we we understand that's a really important part of the hunting experience given how vocal our elk are like put that archery portion as close as possible to the end of breeding season where we still keep our reproductive rates high while we're wanting to grow the population, but allow hunters that opportunity to really interact with them in that way. And then we also know that, you know, deer hunting is a, is a hugely important um, and popular thing in the state. And you know, we have roughly half a million deer hunters in Missouri. The, the month of November is a uh, kind of reserved for deer. So, we wanted to, you know, put that opportunity into December, early December for the firearm portion where we've, the, the bulk of our deer hunting is, is done. Um, we also know from movement data from the collars on the elk that our elk are really, really well distributed on the landscape in December. And so it can spread the hunters out and they can provide a, a good high quality opportunity for them to, to interact with those animals at both times. Yeah. Okay. How many, how many people... You- you reckon might apply i mean we have like you said we have so many deer hunters in the state um <laughs> you think we'll have like two hundred thousand people apply for this or um who, no, you might not have any idea of it uh, i oh man we were it's talking a- about odds last last show right so we were sitting there going i wonder what the odds are and i said something about winning the lottery not might good. be just as easy <laughs> Yeah, your 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 draw odds. Yeah, they're probably not going to be spectacular. Let me just just be honest. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think when we you know, so when we whenever the state proposes new regulations, we have to do what's called a fiscal note. So basically, what the economic impact is. Um, I think we estimated if we we used Kentucky as a proxy, realizing they have more permits for elk there. Um, we used the number of deer hunters and then the number of you know, hunters that applied for elk. And I think we ended up settling on somewhere around our guess was 25,000 people would apply. Um, 
with, you know, the unfortunate, you know, COVID stuff that's going on um, and, and the impacts that may have on people's ability to plan five and six months out, I have no idea what the impact will be. You know, we may have 10,000 applicants. We may have 50. I, I really don't know. I'm planning my trip now. I'm, you guys ready? Uh, yeah. I like <laughs> my odds now. That's fine. I've already applied, so uh, I'm good. Do you happen to know uh, how many tags Kentucky hands out now? Do they hand out quite a bit, or is it still probably in the low number? It, it varies by year, but I think within each of the last four or five years, they've Average, or they've been anywhere between 700 and 1,000 permits a year. Wow. Oh, okay. But they also, they, I think their population is somewhere in the 12,000 range. Oh, they're a little bigger. Yeah. yeah quite a bit bigger. <laughs> they, they are just a little bit bigger, yeah. That's okay. No, yeah, that definitely is all right. But, I mean, like I said, we're just sitting here tickled pink that we're even talking about elk in this state. Right. You know, so – one other question I had just about uh, on the second portion, you mentioned uh, the rifles. Are they going to put any type of regulation on what type of rifle you'll be able to use? Because, I mean, I, you can use a thirty thirty and stuff like that for deer, but I would, I mean, them elk, they're tough animals, and I would think you'd want to use a bigger caliber than some of the ones that are illegal for deer. Yeah, that that has been a... Of the the public comments that we've heard since you know the commission approved the regulations, um, th- that is probably the one comment where people have the most curiosity or question of why we set it up the way we did. So, yeah, yeah, when you think about a lot of other states, they put a caliber restriction or a foot pounds of energy restriction at a certain distance. They have very very specific criteria that say what is legal or not legal for the take of a certain animal. Missouri has kind of taken a different approach. So even with deer hunting with, and we'll just do for the general firearm portion, we won't get down into alternative methods or any of that other stuff. I, I, you know, from a projectile standpoint, I can, as long as it is an expanding round. So as long as it's basically not full metal jacket and it's, you know, I believe it's at least a, you know, 22 caliber center fire, it is legal. We, we've kept it as simple as possible. Do we realize that even with deer, that means a few people probably don't use the gun that they should have used for it? Or they, you know, I mean, yeah, we know some of that happens. But by and large, I would argue that no hunter wants to see any animal they're pursuing suffer. They want that the kill portion to be as quick and humane as possible. And so they want to make sure they're using the proper equipment for that. Right. I can assure you that every person who draws a permit for elk hunting, they will, I, I will have a chat with them or have the opportunity to answer all the questions that they may have. And one of those things that will come up will be recognizing that a bull, an 800 pound bull is not your 200 pound whitetail. Nope. So even though a 223 would technically speaking be legal and arguably a 223 can in fact most definitely kill an elk, it is not a it is not a wise round to use for that purpose. So, you know, we're going to have those conversations you know, to to start putting in all of those details 
to really restrict it, it honestly adds a lot more issues and hassle than it's usually worth because every time something new comes out, there's the question of, well, can I use this or not? Yeah. Or, you know, well, and there, with I all mean, the handling. So it's kind of twofold there, right? Like we appreciate number one, at least myself. I like the big brother isn't, you know, telling me exactly what I have to do. Right. On one hand, but yeah. then on the other hand, the three of us had this d- discussion last episode where we're sitting there going, you know, if somebody's never hunted an elk before and they get one of these tags, I'm not shooting even a 243. You know, something that size still leaves yeah. room for uh, error. error. And, you know, so it's it's kind of cool to hear that you're, you're going to have at least a conversation with those people to try to, whether they are or aren't educated elk hunters, um, to say, hey, you know, you might think about this or bigger. Um, because, you know, another question that we – we came up with when we were talking was, and sometimes this is just an ethics thing. Um, sometimes, you know, that state might say, Nope, your tag is punched, but have you guys thought about, and I'm sure you have, what's going to (laughs) happen if someone wounds one? Um, if it's, you know, if it looks fatal, are they, are they punching that tag or or are you kind of leaving it up to that individual hunter's ethics? Um, when that, when that hopefully doesn't happen, but if it does happen. Yeah. So, you know, first, yeah, we, we certainly hope that for, you know, if, if you hit it, it's fatal and it's recovered. Um, unfortunately, you know, for everyone that's hunted out there long enough, we realize that that doesn't always happen. Um, but then, yeah, you run into the legal versus ethical question and legally that hunter may in fact shoot, even if they, you know, they're certain they have hit that animal. The animal is never recovered. It is 100% up to that hunter, whether or not they decide to cancel their tag or continue to pursue harvesting a different animal, assuming they've made reasonable effort to try to retrieve that, that animal. Um, so it, it really is from a, from the black and white standpoint, there is no, Again, assuming they've made an effort to try to retrieve it, they have no further obligation legally, so they may, in fact, keep their permit yeah. valid and continue to pursue. Um, you know, one of the one of the reasons that we have five permits is to be conservative. Um, you know, while yeah, it would be you know, great, let's you know, have twenty permits. Well, we don't know what success rate's going to be. We don't know what wounding rate or wounding loss will be, if any. Um, by keeping things conservative while we still are working towards our population goal, it gives us more wiggle room in the event that if that unfortunate thing happens where somebody makes a shot on the animal, it ends up being fatal, but that animal's never recovered. That, you know, it's that not a extra loss is yeah, it's not going to make or break whether or not we have a viable population or the opportunity even to hunt them next year. Um, so, you know, yeah, there, there's some consideration for that. I will also say, and again, it, it is an ethical one, but the, that elk are, elk are tanks. They mm-hmm. really are. Uh, you know, one of the experiences that I had in Kentucky that really solidified to me just how hard and tough these animals are 
uh, I watched uh, I watched a hunter put a crossbow bolt right, you know, I, I mean, perfect lung shot, you know, missed shoulder entirely, just you know, guaranteed no if, and, or but through the lungs. That animal ran off. You could see blood coming out. They had it on video so you could even replay to double check where that location hit, you know, shot location was. They searched for it for two days and never found it. And, the, of course, the hunter was devastated. Yeah. I got a call. You know, at the time, we were collecting samples from, from harvested animals. I got a call from one of the folks there two weeks later on opening weekend to their rifle portion. Like, got an elk in camp. So, I, you know, told me where the camp was. I went over there. I hadn't even gotten out of my truck, and I could see the – I saw the bull. I got out of the truck and walked over and said, did you find a crossbow bolt in that elk? And he pulled it out of his pocket. Oh, wow. That bull, that, you know, I was like, what was that animal doing when you found it? He was like, that bull was bugling his head off and chasing a cow. They're, they're beasts. Yeah, they're, they're, ta- I mean, we've experienced it out yeah, west. It, it a, yeah, they're just, they're incredible animals. I mean, we've, so while, yeah, while, while we're really worried that, you know, we, we, we don't want to make shots and we don't recover them. A, a healthy, you know, even just the number of deer that we see each year that have some sign that they were hit by something else, whether it was a car or a, you know, another hunter, wildlife are really resilient animals. And so often there, there are a lot of times where a shot that we, you know, we know hit the animal isn't fatal to the animal. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, it, it can't be black and white, unfortunately. Right. Every Every situation is different. Every, I guess every hunter is, is different as well. I mean, and, and sometimes what you think was fatal isn't. So, um, I mean, we've had it out, out, out West where we, we tracked a bull several years ago that somebody, somebody else shot, not one of us three, but that we tracked him for miles for two days, mile after mile after mile, blood the entire time, not great blood, but blood. And then it stops, and I guarantee you he didn't die. And it's just like, how? How does that animal lose that much blood and then not die? I, I've never seen a, a, a more tough animal. I know whitetail are tough, and I, I give them a hundred a lot of credit, but I cannot believe how tough some of these, these, these things are. Absolutely. So are they going to have uh, different zones that are going to be – eligible to hunt or is it i mean because you said peck ranch that's off limits obviously so about how many probably public land acres do you think uh will be potentially be able to hunt yeah so i said we really do try to keep regulations despite what people say and despite how thick some of our regulation booklets are we really do work very hard to keep regulations as simple as possible so the entirety of Carter, Shannon, and Reynolds counties, excluding the refuge portion of Peck, so you know, all three of those counties except for about 12,000 acres, is open to hunting, open to elk hunting, assuming you have permission if it's private property. Um, so with that said, we also realize that there are not elk on all the acres in those three counties. Right. Not even close. They're within a much smaller portion of it. Um, 
And I mentioned, you know, 80% of that restoration zone boundary. So that the, the original restoration zone was about 365 square miles. 80% of that is publicly owned or public access is allowed, like in the case of Nature Conservancy land, for example. Gotcha. Um, there, there are, there is way more elk use on public land than private property right now. So most, most of the elk spend their time on land that the public doesn't have to ask permission to go hunt on. That's awesome. Yeah. That's good. Although probably by the end of October, they're all going to be, there's going to be 300 elk packed into the Peck Ranch portion. <laughs> they're going to figure out, hey, stuff is trying to kill us. Let's if, go back there. Yeah. If we stay here, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> Oh, well, that, that's one of the. That's been one of the, the really, really cool things uh, when we were going out to the public, you know, seeking input on what the regulations look like. We broke down elk locations and movement in clumps. So we looked at 2011 to 2014, and then basically 2016 to 20. Sorry, 2014 to 2016, and then 2016 to 2018, looking at how their movements were moving. And the first few years, it's really all concentrated there around Peck Ranch. The next two years, it's expanding. And the next two years, it's expanding even more. In the first few years, those elk barely spent any time off Peck Ranch or that general vicinity. You look now, we have, you know, entire groups of bulls and cows. They never come back to Peck Ranch, period. Cool. So our, you know, our elk are setting up their own true unique herds and home ranges within that broader landscape. And that's, that's exactly what you want to see with that growing herd. But it's also, you know, the reason that we're not, those groups, they're, for, they're moving five or 10 miles. They're not moving, you know, 50 miles. They're moving smaller distances, but setting up new areas because of the high quality habitat that's there that private landowners and you know, MDC along with Park Service and other cooperators are putting on that landscape. It, it really is the, yeah. If you think back to the, the old thing, if you build it, they will come. When it comes to elk, if you renovate it, they will come. Uh, it, you, you provide a new high quality forage, and I kid you not, they won't have stepped foot there in three years. And the second it's in the ground, they put their nose in the air and go, ooh, perfect. And then they're happy. And we, we've that. seen that happen. So, yeah, they're, I think the fact that we do have those different unique groups of elk will also help for the hunter who's willing to, you know, even to just put a, a, a modest amount of time fi figuring out where those groups are, they can spread themselves out and have incredibly high-quality hunts all to themselves. Yeah. No, that that's that sounds pretty. I I didn't realize. I guess I assumed they all stayed around the ranch for the most part. It's kind of cool to hear that there are certain elk that are part of our herd now that don't even step foot onto the to the ranch at all. I mean that that's cool. I think it's it's probably not quite half, but there's it's it's easily a third of our elk haven't been back in a couple of years. And I mean, even at the ranch itself, a couple of years ago, I I drove across southern Missouri, at dead dead in the summer, like in July, and I had some time to kill, so I I went to the ranch and I talked to the guy at the front and asked him, "Are they here right now?" And he's like, "Yeah, there's some there's some here right now." So I drove through and I got to see a handful of of cows, let's say ten or so, and 
And I just assumed at the time that all of the the elk in our state were somewhere on that ranch, just because nope. you know I didn't I didn't think otherwise. But that's cool to hear. Yeah, there there's there's a a pretty healthy number that never come back and and honestly most of our bulls they they come back there's a few that come back because of the cows that are still hanging around that area but most of the bulls don't really spend any time on peck yeah so it's 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 cool it really does provide yeah a lot of folks that have asked questions about the hunt and they're like so you know but yeah it's just you know the elk are just on pecks it's like no actually a a good number of them really aren't and uh, even just this winter, while there there were times throughout this fall and winter that there may have been somewhere between 60 and 80 elk on peck, uh, most of the winter there there were far far fewer than that on especially the refuge portion of peck. Yeah, I've I've counted more than 100 off of peck ranch just this winter. That's cool. That's crazy. So. Do you know if? Um... So for the lucky people that do get a tag, is the MDC, are they going to like hold their hand at all? Or is it going to be, nope, here's your tag. You go out, you do it just like any other hunt. And like, are they going to put like a, I mean, cause I know if I get it, I know Nathan or Andy or some of my other friends, they'd want to come tag along with me on the hunt. Just, I mean, are they going to put any type of regulations or anything like that on that? Do you know? Cause you know, people are going to bring like 40. <laughs> like I mean, everybody he knows me. is coming with him yeah it wouldn't surprise I, me i i have i i have experienced i have witnessed that in kentucky <laughs> and a, a young hunter that you know was lucky enough to get drawn for one of their 10 youth tags and it it really was him and his family and his extended family it was it was like a group of 20 oh like, <laughs> that, that is a lot of people walking through the woods um so yeah no if, if you are one of the lucky five that is drawn we're we're not going to hold your hand this is your hunt and it's your opportunity to make of it what you want um we're, we're absolutely there to answer questions and we want you to be successful we want you to have a good hunt um i'm not going to like circle the spot on the map where you should go that's that's not going to happen dang it um, please yeah, we can help. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's 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 not how this works this really is again it's a hunt and it's the hunt that the person can make of it what they want. Yeah. And I think that's the way, that's the way it should be. No, Um, we agree. I agree. Yeah. We also acknowledge or recognize that, uh, even if we just look at the, if you're lucky enough to get one down, you have an 800 pound animal. Getting that out of the woods is not like you, 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 uh, back up your truck to it and, or drag it out of the woods. That's, that's not exactly how it works with an elk. Um, you know, we, we currently have, you know, we, we, we try to do everything as black and white as we can. Um, gray is a fuzzy, is is not good color when it comes to regulations and enforcement. Um, you know, right now for any species, it doesn't matter what it is. Anyone can have any number of people, quote unquote, accompany them in the woods where the, the line in the sand is, is whether or not those people can assist in the take of that animal. So for all species, for most situations, 
the only time that someone can assist another hunter in the take. So the only time they can help spot animals, the only time they can help call is if they're also a, another properly licensed hunter. So mm-hmm. in the case of elk hunting, that would mean you would have to have another elk permit. Whether it was filled or not is irrelevant. You just have to have an elk permit. We realize that the likelihood of two people getting drawn that know each other out of those five is pretty slim. <laughs> All three of us so, are assuming we're getting one. So I, maybe, maybe <laughs> I'm just uh, kidding. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate your optimistic outlook. That's how you got to do it, right? Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to know. If you could air this log after the hunt, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there are exceptions like during the youth portions of deer and turkey season youth hunters can have a you know a mentor who is unlicensed but does who is at least 18 years of age and has completed hunter education they can have them assist in the hunt except for helping pull the trigger or release the arrow so to speak um, that same provision does exist for youth hunters between 11 and 15 for elk but you know, again, no one can go along unless they're a licensed elk hunter outside of those exceptions and assist so they can't spot, they can't call for you yeah. unless they're a licensed hunter. But you can still have people go through the go with, with into the woods with you. You can also have as many folks as you want to help you get that animal out of the woods. Yeah, that's There's the no big one. On that whatsoever. Yeah, we, so, yeah, if you, yeah you, we've all had a few uh, – out in Colorado, we've each – had plenty of elk meat on our backs and it, the more people, the merrier and it <laughs> makes that process a lot easier getting that thing out of there. Well, and depending it, how, it. how deep they're in there, man, some, I mean, some of the, the folks who maybe have never done it before really need to think about what pack they're going to be using, uh, back if they're deep into the, the public land, because, um, it matters if you've got a backpack on your back or something that can pack meat. Yeah, when, when you when you consider that you know deboned, you know a hind quarter could run, yeah, seventy to ninety pounds probably. <laughs> yeah, it adds up real quick. Yes, it does. So so yeah, no, there there is no restriction on you know if if you want to hunt by yourself or hunt with just you know you want to have one person or again however many you want to accompany you, that's fine. They just can't help you with the actual take. Once it's down, though, I mean, if you want to call in, you know, everybody you know to help you get it out, by all means. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense. No, and I think, like I said, I'm, we're we're just excited that it's a it's a it's a possibility in our state, and you know, I highly doubt any of us get the tag, but if one of us do, obviously, would be so excited. One other thing that we we hope to get to do. Uh, of course, you know, we have all these these uh, privacy things, but one day, you know, whoever gets drawn, it would be so cool to talk to those folks, you know, after their hunt or even before it and talk about, you know, what their plan is um, or how, what their experience was if, if it was after to to see, you know, how that, that first one went. There's, you know, five people are going to be the first five. Yeah, so if you are one of the lucky five that get that tag and you hear this podcast, get a hold of us because we want to talk. You're to one you. of the seven people listening to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it will be. It, there will there will definitely be a lot of a lot of interest, you know, in those who are drawn. And yeah, you know, while absolutely it is, if you're lucky enough to get drawn, that's phenomenal. Um, 
some will argue, yeah, there's an obligation to <laughs> to kind of let you know the rest of Missourians kind of experience that with you. Um, but I, I would ask you know, some keep in mind that everyone's what they want out of that hunt and that experience that is really personal. Uh, it it does differ, and while you know, we we hope that they're at least able to share glimmers, you know, everyone should respect their you know, right to privacy, so to speak, or just allow them to share what they're willing to share. Sure, so. absolutely. I mean, everybody's vision of what an elk hunt is is different. You know, the way we do it, absolutely. even in, in the state we go to right now, is different than a, another count, another hunter does it just because that's their vision of what an elk hunt might be. It might be public land over the counter with a bow. It might be a guided hunt with a outfitter. Um, that You know, obviously out in Colorado, not here, but... Um, everybody's vision is is different than than the next person. So yeah, yeah, you're you're 100 right, and we really appreciate you know you taking the time out to to talk about this. We are super excited that the work that MDC has put in in the last you know 20 years basically to get us to this point, and I'm hoping obviously that it it becomes even even more tags as the years go on uh, to to be able to to hunt this awesome animal in my home state is, is really awesome. So, you know, we thank you, uh, MDC to, for, for at least even trying this, this thing in 2020. So, um, is there anything you'd like to, to tell the listener before we hop off as far as, you know, contact information, you know, where they should go to get information, that sort of stuff? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll back up one little bit. So on that, yeah, I, thank you for, you know, thanking us i would really be i'd be remiss if i didn't say you know this this really is a conservation success story and it's something that all missourians should be truly proud about you know something that you know we we are very very fortunate here in this state that missourians value conservation and they they put their money where their mouth is you know we're a state that loves to spend time outdoors and and we're willing to pay for that opportunity to have such awesome natural resources available to us uh this wouldn't have been possible without missourians and uh, this reintroduction effort oh man the the number of partners whether it's agencies private individuals the, the number of folks you know mdc employees that have literally put their blood sweat and tears into getting us to this point um it really took a very, very large army of folks to get us to where we are today. I just happened to be here now when it's getting to this point, but there were a lot of people before me that put a lot of work and a lot of effort to get us to this point. Um, if folks, also worth noting, we do have two, you know, pretty big conservation areas that are both smack dab in the middle of where we have elk and Peck Ranch Conservation Area and Current River Conservation Area, both of those areas have driving tours that are open to the public, you know, self-guided driving tour. There's no fee, no nothing else. Um, you know, and your opportunities of seeing elk are fairly decent on both of those driving tours. But yeah, I do encourage Missourians, if you if you ever want to see, you know, here in Elk in Missouri, those are two great areas to do it on. Um, elk calving will start again peaking here a really kick off beginning of June by middle of June to early July, you'll probably start to see calves start to come back out into some of the open fields right at dawn and dusk. And so great opportunities to see elk then and see some, some pretty cute calves. 
Um, if they want information on elk hunting, on elk tours, you know, just recommend folks go to our website, you know, mdc.mo.gov, and you can just, in the search bar, type in elk, and all the different stuff that's out there will pop up on what's available on our website. Yeah, and we're we're planning on we're gonna put the link in for the uh, the MDC information on the the season and how the, how people can apply in our show notes. So um, we just like I said, we really appreciate you jumping on and hope to to talk to you down the road, Aaron. Down the road, Aaron. <laughs> Absolutely, I appreciate the opportunity. All right, we'll see you, bud. Thank you. There it is, episode two in the books, Elk in Missouri. Lots of good information on that one. Yeah. So some some quick housekeep, housekeeping things. Um, if you would like to get a hold of uh, Missouri Department of Conservation, just hit up their website, mdc.mo.gov. Our guest today, Aaron Hildreth, um, is a elk biologist with the department. Uh, you can shoot him an email at Aaron, that is A-A-R-O-N dot Hildreth, H-A-H-I-L-D-R-E-T-H at mdc.mo.gov. And... Um, you know, as always, sh- give us a follow on our Instagram page at Missouri Woods and Water, all spelled out. Our Facebook page, Missouri Woods and Water. And um, go give us a subscription on your, uh, however you choose to listen to your podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can find us on the Sportsman's Nation's website. And um, got anything else, man, before we hop off? No, but definitely go go to those websites and get get all that information that you need if we didn't cover it it's it's covered in the Missouri Department of Conservation website yeah so that's a good point I'm gonna drop a link on the show notes as well to that um, to that article that tells you how to apply um, when to apply when the dates are when to apply all that stuff you basically have from May 1st to May 31st to apply for this so um, it's counting it's, down it's getting close so Anyway, uh, we hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.